My name is Whitney. I have the privilege of serving on the prayer team and in high school ministry. And today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 4, 3 from the NIV. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. Thank you. Awesome, Whitney. Thank you so much. Good morning. Um, you, you, you won't even notice because they're being so amazingly amazing right now, but we have our junior high students in the house with us this morning as well. <laughs> Praise God. I see you. Okay. Today, uh, we are in the book of Philippians, and we're looking at a story from the early church. And guess what we see when we look at the early church? We see church drama. We see that unity does not come easily as evidenced even in the early church. In fact, even in the early church, they had to fight for unity. And so as we look at this passage of scripture this morning, church, we consider what it takes for us in our context to stand together. And so our sermon this morning uh, is entitled Standing Together. So please join me as we pray to ask the Lord to prepare our hearts and the Holy Spirit to instruct us and apply these words to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your great love for us. This morning, God, we ask you, Lord, to lead us, to direct us, to instruct us, to correct us, God, to mature us. I pray now that you would anoint, anoint me, my mind, these words, God, and people wouldn't hear from me, Lord, but you would use me to instruct and to teach and to, uh, to grow and mature and to bring us to a greater understanding of what unity looks like in the church. And we love you, Lord. Thank you that we get to do this now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what does it look like to experience long-lasting, fruitful community? What, what does that require? Do we need to find people who are just similar to us? Uh, do we need to all agree on most things in order for us to experience unity? 
Well, surprisingly, simply having a lot in common with someone, and especially like a, a group of people, just because you have a lot in common with them, it does not necessarily mean that everyone's going to get along. It doesn't mean that you're going to have unity. And so what is a reliable predictor for a healthy and vibrant community? Well, one of the best predictors for a healthy community is how well people handle conflict. What do we do with conflict? Um, we, we all recognize Abraham Lincoln in his role as president uh, during the Civil War, but before he was president, Lincoln practiced law and he worked as a trial lawyer. And uh, throughout his writings, it's clear that he recognized that trial work should be approached with the goal of settlement outside of a trial, rather than creating new conflicts and creating new battles within a courtroom. He once was invited to speak at a law school in Illinois, and he opened his talk with these, at the time, were very surprising words. He said, discourage litigation, right? It's like at a law school talking to new lawyers. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how the nominal winner is often a real loser in fees, expenses, and a waste of time. As a peacemaker, the lawyer has a superior opportunity of being a good man. He continues, he goes, quarrel not at all. No man resolved to make the most of himself can spare time for personal contention. Better give your path to a dog than to be bitten by him contesting for the right. Even killing the dog does not cure the bite. See, arguing and fighting seem to come naturally to us when we disagree with someone or when someone has offended us, doesn't it? Right? We seem to default into fighting with others in order to achieve our goals. Like if the goal is winning, the, winning, being right or winning an argument, the tool that we use is to argue. And Lincoln would argue that every conflict requires negotiation in order to bring peace and unity, not arguing. And so then fighting and arguing, which tends to be our default, is never going to produce healthy, fruitful community or unity. And this belief that Lincoln held was controversial in the courtroom, but it made him a very successful and trusted lawyer. Years later, after becoming president and being tested for years by the Civil War, right, um, his advisors were urging him to take a stronger stance against the South, to, to punish them, and to use hard language, use harsh language. If we're going to ever rally the North, you need to be super upset, and you need to like kind of fan the flames of, of this dis disappointment and, and discouragement. You need to like fan those flames in order to rally people behind the cause. But in his second inaugural address, after he was elected for a second term, he gave one of the greatest speeches, in my opinion, of all time. And he reflects that his desire for peace and for unity in the way he chose to approach reconciliation, bringing two completely separate factions back together. And he starts that speech with words that are probably, hopefully, familiar to you. He starts this address with, with malice toward none and charity for all, putting everybody on the same equal ground. He was a masterful leader when it came to bringing reconciliation rather than simply furthering conflict. And one of the great signs of maturity in our life is the ability to resolve conflict. What do we do with conflict? And for many of us, we question our friendships or we question our community at the first sign of an argument. Everybody knows that an argument can break a relationship, right? Everybody knows that, that an argument can end relationships even. 
But what if the problems that we face, or the disagreements that we face in our life, what if those problems could make our community and our relationships stronger rather than breaking it or breaking them? It all depends on how we handle conflict. And so in our passage today, we learn of some conflict in this church, right, which is not a surprise to anyone. It's, and it's easy to say, well, of course there's conflict in a church. Everybody knows that there's conflict in a church, right? Religious people have been fighting and arguing and disagreeing with and going to war with one another for centuries. If you've ever taken a a history class, you know that there's drama in religious groups, right? But see, conflict is not simply a religious problem. Conflict is much broader. It is a human problem. We endure endless arguing in our government between political parties, within political parties, endless arguments at work, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our families. Thanksgiving, we're just about to celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a holiday where we get together, experience tension and conflict, and argue with our families. We have a holiday for it, right? Like, that, that, that's what so many of us, like, we're all excited for Thanksgiving until you're sitting across from, you know, Uncle so-and-so, Right? Thanksgiving, I think, helps us understand one of the underlying realities of any community of people. The reality is there will be drama. There just there will be. There will be disagreement. There will be offense. This is evidenced in every one of our personal lives and our experiences, and it's also evidenced throughout Scripture. We see it throughout the Bible. And in our passage today, we read about drama in the Philippian church. These two prominent women... Both mature Christians, Paul says. Both well-known. I mean, Paul addresses them by name, which means everybody would have known who they were. Everybody probably was very well acquainted with the situation that was going down in the church, and and he acknowledges their influence. He acknowledges just the hard work they've put into uh, following Jesus and being a part of the leadership of the church, but he doesn't detail all of the issues. We actually have no idea exactly what's going on. And here's why this issue matters, though. Because Paul's passion is for unity, and there was not unity among a couple of the leaders. And when leaders aren't unified, the community is not unified. The thing about unity is that it's gained slowly, but it's lost very quickly. And so it must be prioritized. Unity must be a priority for each one of us, and it must be a priority for us corporately. And issues that affect unity must be addressed. And there are two common but not helpful approaches we tend to take when dealing with disagreement. Okay, you might find yourself, uh, you know, in one of these camps or the other one. I actually am both, okay? We tend to either avoid conflict, and I'm a good conflict avoider, or we amplify conflict. And when I'm done avoiding conflict and I can no longer avoid it, I turn to amplification, right? So, so you might be a yes and person as well, but, but maybe you tend to avoid. Maybe you tend to just amplify. The second someone offends you, you just get set off, right? Well, neither of those are helpful if our goal is more than just winning an argument. If our goal is long-term fruitful community, we need more than avoidance or amplification. But if avoidance and amplification is our default, that's all we know how to do, and both are ineffective, then how are we supposed to handle conflict when it arises? Because it will arise. Thankfully, Scripture offers some practical help, um, but it doesn't just tell us how we can, like practical steps, it also shows us something bigger. 
that we see in our passage here. It provides the why, because we need to see both. We need to see how we can walk and why we should walk. And this is important for us as a community. It's actually vital, because one of the biggest and most common accusations against the church, okay? One of the biggest accusations against Christians, when people hear, you know, when you, when you talk about your church or you mention that you're a Christian, here's what they think. Christians don't practice what they preach, right? Christians are hypocrites. Well, unity and, and living life together in this way, this is, this is what we believe, this is living out what we believe together. Right? Unity ought to be very important to us because our, it's our opportunity to show the world and other Christians to show them what we believe rather than just tell them what we believe. Right? We get to show them what we believe by how we live our life together, by how we deal with conflict, by how we stay together with joy over a long period of time. And so what do we need to know in order to truly stand together? How do we deal with delicate, hurtful, potentially divisive situations? Well, from our passage, we see four things. We need to know four things if we're going to navigate conflict well. The first thing we see in our passage is we need to start with love. Has to start with love. And that's what Paul does. He, he sets the table with love. He begins and ends, actually, with love. This incredible expression of love for the whole community, even the people he's about to, to correct. He, ex, he extends this incredible love to them. Look at verse 1. He goes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. He goes, I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy. You're the crown I receive for my work. That Paul is piling on the love here, right? That is five expressions of his love and affection for them in one verse alone. He's caring for the people of the church. He's not just correcting their behavior. He sets the tone of the correction with this great love that he has for them. See, before he challenges his friends, before he deals with the drama, Paul leaves no doubt about his love for them. And remember, Paul is writing to people that normally he would never be associated with. Paul is a, is a Jew, right? He's already given us his, his credentials earlier in the book, right? His, this rich Jewish heritage and background and, and position of authority and education, all of that that he had. But see, the place that he's writing to in Philippi, it's a city and a culture that was, that was steeped in Greek and Roman influence. See, those two groups, the Jews and the Greeks or the Romans, they're, they're not groups that would normally pursue unity, Right? It's not like, hey, let's go see what the Romans are having for dinner tonight. It's like, no, let's build our wall a little higher between our houses. Let's like, keep, give them their space and let's keep private, you know, keep ourselves you know, kind of isolated. Historically, that's what we see. And so this is, this is unique in all of history that Christians would be pursuing this kind of relationship. And Paul is saying that because of the gospel, he's filled with love for them. He goes so far as to say, I long for you, Right? which is almost kind of weird. Like, he feels this pain of separation. He says that they're his joy. He's talking about a relational joy, this joy he feels when he's with someone. He's saying, I miss you. That's what he's telling them. I miss you. Like, that's pretty spectacular that he would go that far. And it's interesting for us to consider this because it means that as a church, even though we can have many cool things, right? We Gifted musicians, uh, a, a great preacher, who's sadly not here today, 
<laughs> wonderful programs, activities, teachers for kids, and, and youth, and gathering college students together, and women's stuff, and a men's retreat. We can have all this awesome stuff, but see, the presence of God and the people of God as we gather together, that is where we experience our joy. It's not in the stuff. It's not in the gifts. It's not, it's, it's not in the, the, the cool programs. It's in the presence of God together. And Paul says that his joy for them is like a crown. It's like a victory celebration. He longs to be with them, to experience that joy with these believers. And he's not talking about like, hey, once you get your act together, I would love to come and visit you. Once you guys work through this drama, I want to come see you because right now there's a little too much strife there. No, he's talking about right now with all their drama, with all their weirdness, with all their preferences and opinions. And you guys know what I'm talking about. You're in a room full of people, right? Like in light of that guy that won't stop clicking his pen, right? Even though that person in my community group has this strong opinions about everything and interrupts people, even though that guy wears too much cologne, right? Like even all these like weird things, when people come together, there's so many reasons to separate and to find divisions. And Paul is like, I long to be with you. You're my joy. He's saying, my love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on the love of God. And Paul is not out to correct someone that he doesn't have love for. And that is a wonderful model for us. It's a great example for us to see and imitate in our own lives. What would it look like for us to only ever correct people that we love? And I don't mean just like, I know it's, that love is hidden in my heart, but right now, I'm pissed and I'm going to let them know about it, right? Like, I'm not talking about that kind of love. I'm talking about the kind of love that Paul's doing here. It's not just like, you know you love someone. It's like, I know I love you and you know that I love you. And in the context of love, what would it look like for us to only ever correct people that we demonstrate love for, people we long to see and enjoy time with? What if we were a people who stopped to work on our loveless hearts first before we took action to correct other people? What if, right? What if we were people who loved others despite their drama? What if we loved others despite their discord, despite the weird things that they got going on in their life? What if we loved them despite their idiosyncrasies? See, it would look like a community of people who love first and correct second. A community where correction is an expression of our love rather than an expression of our disagreement rather than an expression of disappointment or discontentment or frustration, or rather than an expression of anger. See, the love we see Paul demonstrating to the Philippian church, it shows us two things that I think we can receive today as a couple of good words of advice. First, don't let division surprise you. There are always gonna be difficult circumstances. There are always gonna be difficult people. There are always gonna be people that don't agree with you or you don't agree with them, period. There will be drama. There will be gossip. There will be striving. There will be frustration. It doesn't matter what group of people you're in. And this can be very hurtful, but it's, but it's very common. And so if we prioritize unity, we can't let difficult situations or difficult people surprise us. We have to expect it. We have to make an allowance for that if unity is the goal. So first, don't let, it, don't let division surprise you. The second is don't let division control you. This is my tendency. It's easy for me 
to let difficulty or conflict control me. It's what I think about when I go to bed. It's what I think about when I wake up in the morning. I, I'm, like, I'm like driving to work, and rather than like listening to worship music or, or listening to music that puts me in the zone where I can like think through my day and, and pray for people, I, I'm like going through the conflict, and I'm, talking, I'm going through the script, and what am I going to say? Or, oh, they're so going to get it when I say it, but it's not the right time. I'm going to wait. You know, I'm going to let it build. Like, like all these sort of what-if scenarios. Don't let division control you. See, the failures of others should never determine our faithfulness to Jesus, and the failures of others should never determine our faithfulness to Christian community. So often when people say, how come you're not in community? The answer is like, well, I got burned. Listen, other people's failures is not a good reason for you to bail on community. It's not a good reason for you to bail on Jesus. We stand firm in the Lord. The promises of God are true. We're citizens of heaven. That's who we are. And this reality shapes how we respond to difficulty. So we start with love when we face conflict. But then how do we respond when drama and division arise? Well, number two, we take the first step. Take the first step. Notice that Paul doesn't take sides as he addresses the issue. His primary concern is not for who is most at fault right? Paul is most concerned that a personal conflict is threatening the corporate unity of the church. Listen, acknowledging fault does matter, okay? But Paul's main concern here isn't like who's more at fault. His main concern is that this personal disagreement has disrupted their ability to display unity. And so he pleads with both of them. And so who's supposed to take the first step? Who goes first? Like when I'm insulted, when I'm slighted, or, or maybe it's the other way around, when I've been insensitive and I can, I can see that I've offended someone. Who takes the first step? You do. I do. But I really don't like to make the first move, right? I want to make sure they're like really offended and not just kind of like, I want to, I want to see what I'm dealing with here, right? I don't want to like totally throw myself under the bus unless I have to. Like, let's see what it takes, right? Who wants to try to be humble and go first, especially when we're the one who's wrong? But that's exactly what healthy community requires. Regardless of whether we've been wronged or we're the one who's wrong, once unity is broken, it is my responsibility, it is your responsibility as a Christian to take steps to reconcile. We can't be okay with brokenness and no path to reconciliation. Taking the first step is nerve-wracking. So here are a few little practical words of advice. Approach the person and the situation with humility. Okay? What this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that before you meet with that person that totally offended you and broke your heart or whatever, don't go sit in your, your car and listen to Taylor Swift revenge songs before you meet with them, right? That, that's not going to set the table right. Like, you know, T-Swift and her anger at her latest breakup is not going to help you pursue unity with a humble heart. Don't let pride take hold. Don't create demands and ultimatums. Come with humility. Also, be respectful. 
Be, respect, be prayerful. I spoke with someone at first service who's had incredible tension in, in this marriage for years and years and years. And this, this person came up to me to give me this report. Well, about, a, I, I think it was four months ago, they decided, even though they've been receiving counsel for years that they needed to pray together, they decided even though they were about as opposite as they could be and they, had, they were together for all the wrong reasons, right? But they were still together. There was a decision made by both of them to start praying together. And the report was today, this person that was talking to me was saying their spouse is absolutely pursuing them and is in love with them. And they haven't even worked through all of the issues. God has just started changing their heart. Because it's hard to stand in solid, cold, hateful opposition to someone that you're praying for when God starts showing you their need for grace. And he starts showing you your need for grace. And we recognize, even though we might be divided on an issue, we're this exact same as we stand before God in need of grace. And then we start rooting for one another. Yeah, be respectful. Be prayerful. Approach the person with humility. Uh, be willing to admit your fault, right? Not, not that you have to like, admit fault in every situation. Like, like, the, like it has to be 50-50 or, or it's a no deal. No. But, but we want to appeal to them at least, acknowledging like, hey, man, I, maybe I totally missed something, but we need to talk about it because it feels like there's tension in our relationship. And if I owe you an apology for something, please let me know. But from my perspective, this is how I hear it. And our relationship is so important. I want to work through this with you because I feel like we're, we're going in opposite directions. See, when we take the hard work of examining ourselves and allowing ourselves to be open for examination, it sends a powerful message. This relationship is important to me. Also, we need to be committed to the process of healing. Oftentimes, it feels like there's a resolution, right? And it's like me. I'm like, I've got a three-second attention span with stuff that I don't want to be involved in, right? It's like, okay, awkward conversation. Looks like there's a resolution. It's like, great, let's go to dinner. Let's do this, right? Like, that check, that's done. Let's go. But no, healing can take time. Oftentimes, when it seems like there's resolution, there's no resolution at all. Issues go unresolved because... Sometimes people are unwilling to take the time to let healing happen. And so even in light of all of this, even in light of all this good advice, maybe we've tried all of this. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, that's all great, Billy. I've tried that for years. But my situation's not improved. In fact, my situation has gotten worse. What do we do? See, this is often where people give up. What are we supposed to do? We've approached in love. We've taken the first step. Now, the third thing is we ask for help because number three, restoration is a community project. Restoration is a community project. I bet that on Paul's mind as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he's thinking about the letter that he had just written to the church in Corinth. You know what I'm talking about? That scandalous situation, many scandalous situations that he had to address in 1 Corinthians. Like, he'd, he'd, he'd directly address this argument that it was happening in the church that then bled out of the church, and these two people ended up in court, over the two Christians battling it out, duking it out publicly, as it was in their court system at the time, and like bringing shame uh, to the name of Christ in the way they were treating one another, and the way they were trying to bring resolution was just not honoring to Christ. First Corinthians chapter 6, we see, we can get a glimpse of Paul's attitude and, and just the frustration he must have been experiencing as he writes to these people, look at this, it's found in verse 5, it goes, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Like, it's, it's like, come on, N nobody here, nobody here is mature enough to see the big picture? So that, there's no indication that the situation in Philippi is anywhere near 
as severe as it was in Corinth when he wrote that previous letter. But Paul places a a high value on getting help, even in this letter. And he says in verse 3 of our text today, he goes, I ask you, my true partner, and we don't know who that is. He doesn't identify this person, but he's asking someone who's in leadership. He goes, help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. He's saying, listen, these are good people. These are solid people. These are faithful people. They just need some help. They need some guidance. They need some encouragement. They need some truth. They need to be brought to the table. They need to be reminded of who they are, right? Now, we don't know who he's talking to here, who he's asking to mediate. It's probably another leader, but more important than the identity of the helper is Paul's call for help in restoring unity. And guys, sometimes we need help. We need someone to come in and provide perspective and to help bring us back together. It should be someone with maturity. It should be someone with sensitivity. It it should be someone who can mediate and help others overcome differences, right? Someone who's able to see the big picture. It should be someone who doesn't have strong opinions or or one-sided perspective. It should be someone that doesn't require a ton of grace to understand, right? It should be someone who can speak clearly and speak with grace. And when this person comes, right, when when they agree, this needs to be done with such love and such even-handedness and affirmation that we guard against unnecessary pain, that we guard against shame. We don't come together to mediate so that you could like win the argument and shame the other person. We come together with a mediator so that we can see reconciliation, so we can see trust start to build again. The other thing that this mediator needs to be able to do and ask and understand is we must be open to them speaking into the situation and hearing both sides, okay? I've got five kids. What I mean by that is I have lots of experience with mediation, okay? I get to mediate conflict and disunity every single day of my life, okay? And if that's not enough, I have nearly 200 teenagers in my life every week, okay? And here's what I know. Okay, you might not care what I know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's what I know. There are always two sides to the story. There are always two sides to the story. When a person tells their side of the story, they often leave certain things out. And it's not because they're horrible or evil. It's not because they're always trying to frame the other person or whatever. It's just sometimes, and this is, I'll just like, I'll give myself an example. Sometimes it's just easier for me to explain a situation really well if, if I like don't emphasize on all of the details where I'm involved, but more clearly paint the perspective of what the other person did, right? So there's a real clear understanding from my perspective. But what I'm not giving is a real clear understanding from the other perspective. We have to insist on hearing the other side of the story. Uh, There's some really, uh, some wonderful wisdom in Proverbs that speaks directly to this in chapter 18. In verse 17, it says, the first to plead his case seems right, until another comes and examines him. See, it's amazing how a little perspective can help bring clarity to one person's uh, point of view. Have you ever noticed uh, how easily we can assume bad intentions in others, but how rarely we assume bad intentions in ourselves? Example, someone cuts you off real bad. You're just cruising up Main Street. You're like, whoa, I got kids in the car here. And as they're cutting you off, you notice that they're texting someone, right? 
And you're like, dude, it's all I can do right now to not roll my window down and express with honor and dignity my displeasure <laughs> at their decisions right now, right? I know you would do it honorably. It's hard not to do that. But here's the deal. When you, God forbid, may it never happen, send a text while you're driving, see, we totally understand, right? Because it's like, well, I, just, I left work and I, I, I forgot that thing. Or I'm a busy mom. You gotta, I'm a busy, I got to text and drive, right? That's like free pass. Busy mom's going to do whatever they want, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a busy dad, right? Like, I, I still have to go home and, and, and cook dinner. I still have to go shopping. You know, I forgot that that thing is so important. It's going to get ruined if I don't send a text right now, right? See, people's intentions are invisible. We don't know what someone's intentions are until we talk. And oftentimes that requires a mediator. And so when Paul asks for someone to help, he uses an expression that's translated in the NIV as help these women. But the literal translation of that would be join these women back together. It's actually a, a strong way of saying bring unity back, restore unity. And Paul is adamant that unity be restored. And he begs for help in restoring it. But at the same time, Paul is not trying to solve this dispute on human grounds, right? He's not just saying, okay, you apologize, you apologize, great. Rub elbows, everyone's laughing now. Good, you're good to go, right? No, he's not trying to solve this on human grounds. And this is our fourth point. Our unity is part of a bigger story. Our unity is part of a bigger story. And Paul understands this. And he is imploring this church in Philippi to see the bigger picture. He refers to the book of life, right? Like at the, at the beginning in our scripture reading, uh, before our passage began, and then even at the end of our passage, he's reminding them, he's speaking to, to the, the, hey, let your unity, let your unity be grounded in this idea that we're all citizens of heaven, that we're, our citizenship is in the same place. Now, he's writing to people who are very familiar with registries and books of names. It sounds weird to us, but these were citizens of Rome that he's writing to. Their names were definitely kept on a registry, and these books were important to the citizens. They wanted to make sure that their name was spelled right, it was clear, it was on the right list, because that's their proof of citizenship. That's the proof that they'd paid their taxes. And citizenship in Rome had tremendous value, tremendous benefits, protection from, from law enforcement and the, the Roman army, the justice system. If you, had, if you had a beef with someone, like you could go get that dealt with in court. Like there was a court of law where hopefully you could get justice. Tremendous infrastructure, right? the roads, the walls around a city. You had to be a citizen to live within the walls. The, the running water, the, the aqueduct system, there are tremendous benefits to being a citizen of Rome. And Paul says that there's a much bigger and more important story to your identity than your citizenship in Rome. He's saying this is something bigger than Rome. There's something better than Rome. Our names are in heaven's registry. Our lives are lived with heaven's benefits, right? Heaven's armies protect us. God the Father comforts us. Jesus brings us peace and forgiveness and joy. See, Roman law might have given Roman citizens some real perks in life. But heavenly citizens, as a follower of Jesus, gives us eternal hope. A hope that extends beyond the Roman Empire, which is long gone now, right? A hope that extends, a joy that extends, a love that extends, into eternity. Our eternal hope, our eternal joy, and our eternal love affect our life and change our life that we live right now. 
Having a perspective, a heavenly perspective, that's what Paul is encouraging them to look at. He's like, man, get, get your eyes off of like the, the, who did what and, and who's at fault. Like, look at the big picture. You're citizens of heaven. Man, receive that citizenship. Walk in that citizenship. Fight for that citizenship. Like, man, we are way more connected, way more connected than we are divided. Let's pursue reconciliation. Remembering our citizenship changes our perspective on everything in life, including conflict. When we remember who we are, then we remember how we now get to live, the benefits of living in Christ. We get to live this life together. And this is why unity is so important because together we tell a bigger story. Unity allows us to function as citizens of heaven, focusing on heavenly priorities. But here's the thing, disunity, disunity also changes the focus of our story. Disunity changes the voice of our story. So when we're living in unity is our priority, we're, the things that come out of our mouth are things like God is at work. When something awesome happens, it's like praise God for that. Let's give God the glory for that. But see, when, when, when disunity, when we're living in disunity, we have lesser goals besides Christian unity, then you hear stuff like, Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Or did you hear about their problems? Or did you know what they believe about this? Do you know what they believe about that? Like we, we focus and we allow all these lesser things into our heart to direct our eyes and to direct our preferences. And we must remember that we are part of a bigger story. The bigger story is more important than the small little chapters. Do you realize who you are? Reality Ventura, do you realize, do you remember how God has changed your life? How many of you have had your life changed by following Jesus? Who is a different person today than you were before you followed Jesus? Think about that for a second. What is different about your life? What is different about your affections? What is different about your honesty? What is different about your goals? What is different about your hope? What is different about your priorities? Right, without Jesus, I was selfish. Without Jesus, thank God, I, I was brought back in and filled with the Holy Spirit before I was ever a parent because I would be selfish and I would fight tooth and nail every argument to be right. No one's gonna do me wrong, including my own kids. Right, like I, I would, I, I know it, I, I see that proclivity in me, but by the grace of God, I've been changed by the love of God. This heavenly citizenship is more than a lofty ideal. Heavenly citizenship is our identity. It's the reason you make the choices you make. It's the reason you encourage your kids to follow Jesus rather than to follow safety. It's the, it's the reason that Matthew 28 is more important to you than having your kids go to 10 years of, of college, unless they're called to that, God bless them, right? Like we live differently, we have different priorities. Jesus and the call of Christ is more significant and more important in our life. It affects everything we do. It affects everything we think about. And so how do we remember this? How do we walk in this? How do, how, how do we have confidence in this when the whole world around us is full of conflict and separation and discord? How are we supposed to encourage our friends? How are we supposed to encourage our kids? How are we supposed to be an encouragement to our community when we ourselves are walking around discouraged? How are we supposed to encourage them with joy and confidence in the Lord when we walk around in fear, 
just trembling about like, man, this, this, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. If that's your perspective, I want to challenge your heavenly citizenship. Put your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is not going to hell in a handbasket, and neither is his kingdom, and neither are his people, and neither are the things that you're called to, and neither is the community that we get to be a part of. How do we remember this? Listen, we need a mediator. And I'm not talking about what what we were speaking of a minute ago, just with one another. We need help, right? We need a mediator who can join us to God and rejoin us to God to remind us of who we are, to remind us of our priorities, to tell us, Billy, when you wake up today, you are not a fearful person. You're not not this person that that fears this, that that doesn't trust this. That's not who you are. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a well-loved son. You've been given everything you need from heaven to live this life. Now walk in it. Guys, I need a mediator. We're surrounded by a culture living in separation from God. And each one of us sins. Every one of us in little ways turns away from God. Every day, right? When I choose to defend myself rather than to support someone, rather than to to die to myself and, and approach with humility, when I... All my self-defensiveness that I have, every time I sin, it's like this well-worn pathway on a carpet. It's like we just kind of default to it. You go into a hotel room, you're like, dude, I am not walking on that nasty path right there. In the middle of the night, guess what you're walking on when you're walking to the bathroom, right? It's like these well-worn paths in our life, right? It's a beautiful image, isn't it? (laughs) That's what sin does in our life, though. My self-defensiveness. Like, who's going to help me with that? Listen, Jesus is our mediator. We have a mediator. We have a help. We have a savior. And that savior has a name. He is the mature one who comes and brings comfort and peace and unity. And Paul talks about him in 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to read uh, real quick. Verse 5, he goes, For there is one God, there is one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. And that man is Christ who? Jesus We are a community of men and women here in Ventura who know that we've been brought near to God. We live here as citizens of heaven, and our unity, our community, tells a big story to the world around us. It also tells a big story to us. When you wake up in the morning and there are people in your life who you've offended, who still love you, who still encourage you, and who still support you because God has given them the grace for that, it builds you up. It's called edification. It's called fellowship, right? That's what being together is a good thing in Christ. And so in light of this church, let's be a community that is willing to honestly acknowledge when there's conflict. Let's be a family who are so passionate about unity that we pursue one another even when we've been offended. Let's listen to one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's encourage one another. See, the cross is the evidence of how far God is willing to go in bringing you to himself. It may be hard for you to make the first move, but this is precisely what Jesus has done for you. God has made the first move. And so now, church, let's pray as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship. Would you please join me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the truth about who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. Help us now, Lord, as we respond, as we, as we ponder these things. Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you convince us 
of the worthiness of Jesus to be worshipped, of the ability of Jesus to change us and to redirect us. And in the places where maybe there's conflict or discord or disunity in our hearts or in our minds and our life, I pray, God, that you would start to lay the groundwork of love in us. Help us, God, to be motivated to take the first step. Help us to reach out and get help. Help us to see our unity as a part of a bigger story. Lord, do that work in me.